we're focused not as much on the text, but like how it is useful politically. Fair enough. We'll generally be reading larger portions and reflecting on them. So honestly, you, you don't have to read it all. I mean, there's been episodes where certain people haven't read, and I think they contributed just fine. Yeah, he, Mike's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that one in. Welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. It's me, Nick, here with Levi and Steve, and we're back for our third outing into Marx's Capital Volume 1. So thanks for sticking with us so far. As we said last time, we're in the parts where at least it starts to hint at getting easier and uh, more readable. But with that, I'll turn it right over to Levi. So a quick pre-introductory script on something that's in this reading that I think is worth noting. In 1883, Ray Lancaster was one of a dozen who attended a small funeral. In his 1935 novel, Europa, Robert Biffalt put the following words as Lancaster's eulogy. Quote, When I was young, it was my good fortune to make the acquaintance of an old German Jew who was dying here in London from the effects of long hardship and privation of overwork and poverty. He saw more clearly than any other man the disease that was killing the world. His name was Karl Marx. Following the Marx family lineage, biographer Sven Erik Liedman concluded, quote, There has not been a single non-Jew among his relations, end quote. Karl's father converted the family to Christianity, so he might take a position within the government. Liedman noted, in spite of this conversion, quote, Karl experienced anti-Semitism throughout his life, end quote. No surprises there. In this episode's reading, Marx wrote on page 256, quote, the capitalist knows that all commodities, however tattered they may look, or however badly they may smell, are in faith and in truth money, are by nature circumcised Jews, and what is more, a wonderful means for making still more money out of money, end quote. This language again appeared on page 265. Marxist geographer David Harvey argued these passages might be interpreted as Marx ironically using the stereotype of the Jew in order to criticize the vile nature of the capitalist thus revealing that the language of anti-Jewishness is nothing more than capitalist scapegoating. Harvey is too kind. In Marx's 1848 piece on the Jewish question, he wrote the following, quote, As soon as society succeeds in abolishing the empirical essence of Judaism, huckstering in its conditions, the Jew becomes impossible because his consciousness no longer has an object. Subjective basis of Judaism, practical need, assumes a human force, in the conflict between the individual, sensuous existence of man, and his species' existence is abolished. The social emancipation of the Jew is the emancipation of society from Judaism. Marxist scholar Robert C. Tucker used the above to argue Marx, at least in 1848, equated Jews to the worst excesses of capitalism, the opposite of Harvey's defense. Tucker concluded he could not deny that, quote, although Marx himself was of Jewish origin, he harbored anti-Jewish attitudes. The history of anti-Jewishness and anti-Semitism is long and complicated material and socially. The intervention has done work on this topic before. See our series entitled Palestine, Zionism, and Empire. Was Marx anti-Semitic? Uh, not likely. According to the tortured race science of anti-Semitism, which didn't become popular until after 1848, Marx 
is a Semite. Was Marx anti-Jewish? That's more complicated. Uh, to say the least, he dabbled in the language of anti-Jewishness during certain periods of his life. At the same time, he articulated theories of international socialism in contradiction to the hate and division which grew from the very same language. I would argue the reader should be offended by Marx's use of anti-Jewish rhetoric, his use of Orientalism, his use of sexist language, his use of noble savage tropes, and more. As I stated in the introduction to this series, Marx had many blind spots. He was human. And though often ahead of his time, he was a product of his time. Individuals far more knowledgeable than I have considered how to handle these aspects of Marx. But as an historian who has little interest in the history of great men, I have only a passing interest in Karl Marx the man. I'm aware there's a principled school of anti-religious Marxists. But to me, Marx's writings provide a means for understanding the world which complement my own understanding of what it means to be Jewish. I'm also aware there are self-proclaimed Marxists who harbor prejudice against Jews, against Palestinians, against the handicapped, against the transgendered, women, and all other forms of humanity. These are not the same as Marxists critical of the material basis of religion, nationalism, ableism, gender, and sex. The former are scumbags. The latter, while we might disagree with them, are worth learning with. We've always planned to be critical of Marx and his blind spots as we recognize them. But as far as I can tell, these particular flaws do not discredit the core of his analysis. We're not reading Marx dogmatically. We're not taking his positions socially or otherwise as like the absolute truth. Marx is no God. He wouldn't have thought himself as any God. It's not that we can't critique his views. I think we have to look at this and say, you know, based on the ideology and the way of looking at the world that really grew out of his writings, we would hope that he would have gotten better with time as I think Marxist theory as it's been improved upon through the years, you know, encourages us and forces us to get better as we understand these things better. So yeah, I mean, he's a product of his time, like you said, ahead of it in some ways. And I think we just have to hope that he would get better, be better in 2023, and that he would definitely recognize the reasoning behind Marxists today getting better and better. You know, I mean, look at someone like Castro, I mean, the, the Cuban Revolution started out with some pretty heinous positions on homosexuality. Castro got better and later came out and condemned that. It's not to excuse what, what was said and what was done to homosexuals at the time, but it is just to emphasize that you know, we can get better. People change, especially when they live a long time. I mean, if I can just be as forward as possible, I've said shit in my in my life that I'm ashamed of and that I would regret now based on, you know, how I've learned. And uh, no offense, but you're no Karl Marx. So. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same for everybody, though. We can all say that, I think. And that's not to dis- to diminish, I think, like the real conversation on anti-Jewishness and anti-Semitism. Yeah. So getting into the heart of the episode. We now move from money to the transformation of money into capital through the purchase of labor power. All of this Marx does, at least in the Penguin edition, in 33 pages. Last reading, it took him about that many pages to get from wheat to brandy. The readings have become easier, but there's still a lot of political discussions to be had. This reading remains in the sphere of circulation and exchange, so Marx continues to consider the classical economist's ideals of how this arena functions. 
In the previous chapters, when Marx wrote about exchanging commodities for money, and then using that money to exchange for commodities, the CMC process, it all made more or less logical sense. One has wheat, they treat it to someone else to use it in exchange for money, and then one takes the money and purchases brandy to be consumed. In this ideal CMC, each person exchanges for or exchanges a use value, and thus each item could remain of equal value all along. This is turned over on its head when money is exchanged for a commodity in order to, again, secure money, the MCM process. Because one who buys a commodity just to get money is not buying it for its use value, but rather for its exchange value, or its value on the market. Marx qualified this process under capitalism not simply as MCM, since such an articulation assumed equality, but rather as MCM prime, or MCM plus delta M with both representing a change in M. This change in M, whether you prefer delta M or M prime, can only result from an unequal exchange, something classical economists could not conceive occurring in the market. Marx saves the specifics of this, spoiler alert, exploitation for his examination of the sphere of production, which we'll enter next episode. But even before we get there, he leaves a number of concepts in the sphere of circulation addressed only in passing which deserve attention. Well, under capitalism, as individuals who have nothing else to sell, we struggle to gain fair compensation for our labor power based on our perceived needs, our personal investments in self-improvement, and a general sense of human worth and dignity. So what does this look like in real terms? Justice Alfred D. Lerner in 2002 writing for the Majority and Campaign of Finance Equality versus the State of New York, last reaffirmed in 2006, defined the, quote, sound basic education, quote, requirement of the New York State Constitution as, quote, the ability to get a job and support oneself, and thereby not be a charge on the public, end quote. He elaborated, quote, society needs workers in all levels of jobs, the majority of which may very well be low level, end quote. Asked on the street in 2012 if he would support raising the federal minimum wage to $10 an hour, the congressman from Florida, Bill Young, responded, quote, How about getting a job? The constituent activist told him his job paid $8.50 an hour, to which the congressman replied, quote, When you want that benefit, get a job. A Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, on February 2nd, 2023, leading to a mushroom cloud of carcinogenic vinyl chloride burnoff. The company, which reported income over $4.8 billion in 2022 and had filed a stock buyback plan valued at $10 billion just hours before the derailment, offered each resident of East Palestine $1,000 in inconvenience fees. These are each evidence of capitalist greed. They are shocking, but they're not surprising. Still, it begs the question, what is the value of human life? What is the value of a day's work? What is the value of education? To pull back, should we even be using the concept of value, a cold means to measure labor, to consider the worth of humanity? This reading seems as appropriate a place as any to consider the limits of political agitation within the sphere and language of circulation before Marx takes us behind the closed doors of production. Now, if we all could just give our gut reactions to this reading before we begin discussing the substance of Marx's Capital, chapters 4 through 6, where Marx discusses the peculiar commodity, 
labor power. I work in metals, and a lot of this kind of struck me as very similar to the way metals trading is done. Obviously, you know, you're talking about markets and everything, and the fact that you know the true value of something isn't isn't represented in a market. It's whatever someone can can get from selling something. So, I mean, that and I'll talk more about that as we as we get through it. But also the stuff that Levi just talked about. Um, you know, what is the value of education and the value of a day's work. This country surely doesn't value that. He talks about, um, you know, the value of someone's labor is they have to be able to sustain themselves, but also sustain their family. I think it's pretty obvious with that minimum wage quote and just the situation with a lot of workers in this country that there's no consideration of that. So that, that kind of, that hit me as well. Yeah. I mean, for me reading it, it was similar to the last time I went through this. It was kind of just that feeling of we're finally getting there. I'm finally starting to see some of the pieces come together in terms of his argumentation on like a theoretical level. But then you're also, I think, and to Steve's point, you're simultaneously thinking about how much more complex this gets in the real world in terms of the actual exchange of you know money commodities and money and surplus value and it just opens the door i think to think how you know it does kind of manifest in your own life yeah his ideas even though they're still relatively theoretical are getting at concepts that we really see in our day-to-day lives that are Mm -hmm. really hitting home so just as initial question to get us going i attempted to lay it out in in the introduction but does anyone have any reflections or questions about the difference between cmc and mcm which Marx lays out throughout chapter four. I mean, you touched on it, but I just want to make it explicit again that the purpose behind the order of exchange is very important. Because if you talk about the CMC formulation, you're talking about use value at preeminence in this case. Money is basically serving as the facilitator of meeting someone's need via a commodity. Right. So that's like use value. The MCM formulation, while just as real, is predicated upon and valued by exchange value. So it's, you know, the commodity is serving as a vehicle for basically generating and trading based on exchange value. Um, And I just do think that's an important distinction. And it kind of just does like as agonizing it was as it was to get there. You know, it is an important callback, I think, to why within the first pages of chapter one, he was showing us these different facets of the commodity. And it's to set this up because essentially in the MCM, he's setting up kind of the ability for capitalism to strive to continue to go after exchange value ad infinitum. If you're getting more money out of that exchange, you can just buy more commodities, you know. So you're saying it was worth going over the value of a linen coat for (laughs) a whole chapter i specifically said the facets of the commodity i'm not sure that we needed quite that much on the linen and the coat but (laughs) i think we got it (laughs) at least it wasn't for nothing i guess yeah yeah and it it really ties into the sort of contradictory definition of money that we talked about last episode where in the cmc money is merely a means of exchange whereas in the mcm money really fulfills the embodiment of value. And those two things are, we take them for granted in our day-to-day life, but they really are two completely different definitions of money. And Marx argues 
you can't have capitalism without that money concept having these contradictory values. Yeah. And it's also just the representation of the class struggle in a lot of ways, right? Workers are living in the CMC space. Capitalists are living in the MCM prime space, right? Because like we're basically starting with our labor power as the commodity to get money to buy the shit we need to survive. I think that's as good a place as any to get Marx's opinion on this. So on page 250, Marx wrote, quote, the cotton originally bought for 100 quid is, for example, resold at 100 quid plus 10 quid, i.e. 110 quid. The complete form of this process is therefore MCM prime, where M prime equals M plus delta M, i.e. the original sum advanced plus an increment. This increment or excess over the original value I call surplus value. Surplus value, a term we're all familiar with, is where Marx builds his arguments of exploitation inherent in the system of capitalism when he enters the sphere of production. But here he introduces it with cold, distant, almost matter-of-fact language. Do we have any inkling of why he might choose this approach for a concept that's going to become so vivid and bloody later? I think we've talked about how Marx kind of presents almost like the impersonal aspects of capitalism and almost de-individualizes it in a lot of ways. And I don't know, I guess I just like to read some of this matter-of-fact language is just describing capitalism as it is. And, you know, we talked about how it continues to work no matter who's doing it. The motion of capital really doesn't stop based on feelings. So I, I guess it's just like these mechanisms are occurring and it really doesn't matter how you feel about them. This is just how it is. It makes the parts where Marx does engage in a little bit of polemicizing all that more interesting. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I agree with that, and, and I haven't read ahead, so I'm not sure. But I mean, could it be just that he's written this as an academic text and is therefore using that type of language? Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it, because he wants to stay within this realm of exchange and circulation. But as we see, his language really does change as he gets to later parts of the book. And I just think it's funny that he uses the same concept of surplus value but really layers images that are much darker and phantom-like later. We have to remember that just, again, when we go back to his methodology here, he really hasn't introduced, and he, and he won't for another two chapters, where this surplus value comes in. And that's when you get into talking about like human labor. And I think that's where you start to inject, be able to inject some more morality because you can infer treatment of human beings you know, within a certain class based on their class position. So, I mean, at this point, it's just like, hey, there's this thing that exists in this very theoretical equation that I've just shown you here. You know what I mean? And this is just kind of like the basics of capitalism. We haven't even really gotten to, at least in chapter four, that the real secret of it is human labor. In the final paragraphs of chapter four on page 256, Marx wrote, quote, value therefore now becomes value in process, money in process, and as such capital. It comes out of circulation, enters into it again, preserves and multiplies itself within circulation, emerges from it again with an increased size, starts the same cycle again and again. M.M. Money which begets money. Such is the description of capital given by its first interpreters, the mercantilists. As I mentioned last episode, Sven Beckert in his 2014 history, Empire of Cotton, insists the age of mercantilism might be better described as the era of war capitalism. 
because of the heavy reliance on the state to procure new markets, natural resources through violence. This is a form of capitalism which Marx sets aside as merchant's capital, which Marx, I've been told, uh, deals with in some detail in Capital Volume 2. Under mercantilism, Europeans traded guns, cloth, and iron to Africans in exchange for slaves. As this trade boomed, Europeans established demand enormous forts on Africa's western coast. Europeans who manned these forts rarely ventured inland, but came to be known as factors who ran the business of transforming Africans into slaves for overseas shipment within their massive factories. The term factory predates the African slave trade laid out here, uh, but I've seen this cited as the point wherein the term factory first gained common parlance as a location where human beings, their hides in hand, brought on the open market, could expect the tanning. I understand from a theoretical standpoint why Marx made the distinction, but considering the many and mixed structures of capitalism has taken since his writing, does it still make sense to hold these divisions when considering modern internationalism? So what I'm getting at is he's clearly making a theoretical argument here, and he wants to set aside the importance of merchants' capital. But does that mean that we really should take it aside ourselves when considering this, the basis of theft and destruction that really is the heart of capitalism, even under mercantilism? No, I mean, absolutely not, especially with an eye towards internationalism, because you have to understand how capitalism has affected different regions in different ways, right? Like it's been very uneven development on like a global scale. And often the conditions of that development have been imposed, right? Which is why I think on like a really broad level, it's useful to understand this as racialized capitalism. And I think that is a good political framework to work within. Like it, just as, a, as a, an explicit example, I mentioned before that, you know, I organized with PSL. We have these kind of framework of looking at things. There is like the class struggle where it's, you know, the contradiction between the working class and the capitalist class, but there's also these like special oppressions and like where the kind of contradictions are of capitalism are magnified within a certain marginalized group. And in this case, you know, you have to look at the legacy of slavery, you know, the manifestations of basically the same institution in, you know, Jim Crow, in the prison system and build that into an understanding of how the world actually works with maybe like the theoretical underpinnings of this system at its core can't just close your eyes to how this is disproportionately affected certain groups and i think that you know when we need to apply this politically it wouldn't be enough for us to just read this on his terms marx would say okay now go and change the world with it we all like to say that slavery is abolished now right there's no slavery but i think we all know there is I guess you could apply this a little bit to outsourcing. The capitalists would claim they're not enslaving people, but you know they'll move a mode of production to somewhere that's the cheapest place that they can produce it and pay effective, effectively slave wages, right? To people that probably claim they're bettering their lives by offering them any type of wage, but really they're just doing it because they can. The mode of production is cheaper than it would be if they had to pay someone in the United States or a quote-unquote developed nation. To expand on points that you've both made. Marx is writing this monumental text, and he's setting aside and periodizing and creating false barriers between concepts so that he can focus his writing and focus his attention on very specific aspects of capitalism. As we stated at the very beginning at the introduction episode, we're not reading this just on Marx's academic terms. This is not an academic podcast. 
we are constantly going to take his concepts and apply them to the real world in political ways. So it really is silly for us to pretend that merchant capitalism is somehow different than modern capitalism. Nor do I think in other writings does he ever make such hard and fast distinctions. Yeah. <laughs> Marx wrote politically as well. And I think maybe Levi, we, we, in the show notes, even if we don't get into it too much, but we can ex- include that MR Online article that I found, which kind of touches on how Marx addressed some of this stuff outside of capital. But surely, you know, those political writings would have been present in his mind as he's writing capital. So just to say he would have dismissed it's not fair. I mean, we can maybe argue with how he treated it in a given instance and, you know, wish that he went a little bit harder on it. We can update our understanding of it from where he's gotten to. Yeah, and not to make too academic of a point here, there's aspects of Marx's writing where he's a polemic. Uh, There's aspects of Marx's writing where he's a philosopher and there's aspects where he's a historian. And sometimes those concepts can come into conflict with each other. And I think a lot of this chapter is Marx the philosopher. So he's not necessarily dealing with specific evidence of capitalism in action, at least not quite yet. So if you take this out of context of the larger body of Marxist work, you really can come to some troubling conclusions about Marx making very strict periodization or making very strict all-encompassing claims about how capitalism needs to form in order for socialism to come about. And I think it's just something that we need to keep in mind over and over again as we consider how to interpret Marx for today. And it sort of prepares us for these bad faith arguments about what Marx did or did not claim just by taking the philosophical Marx without considering the historical and the polemical Marx himself. Yeah. And then just layering it on top of that, just updating Marx in general. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you think you can just read Capital and you don't have to read some of Marx's political writings, but then also that you don't need to read someone like Franz Fanon or like Ami Césaire, I mean, just to name a few to understand what, you know, capitalism has done to the rest of the world outside of, you know, Western Europe and the U.S. I mean, I don't know if you can truly consider yourself like a functioning Marxist, you know what I mean? I mean, not even to be like, oh, you need to read these things, but you at least need to like, that's one avenue of making an attempt to try to understand how Marxist theory has been applied and updated in places in the world that were like disproportionately affected by capitalism. You really want to be able to question these concepts in a real way that gets you to bigger answers. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not reading Fanon specifically, you want to consider how this would be applied and considered in different locations. So even if you're not going to be a, uh, a great Marxist and read all these great Marxist thinkers, you should at least be a great Marxist and challenge what's being said here, not take it for granted. Yes. So in chapter five, Marx worked to designate the merchant and moneylender as something other than a capitalist in the truest sense. He wrote in page 266 through 267, It is impossible, by circulation alone, to explain the transformation of money into capital and the formation of surplus value. Merchant's capital appears to be an impossibility as long as equivalents are exchanged. It appears, therefore, that it can only be derived from the twofold advantage gained over both the selling and the buying of producers by the merchant who parasitically inserts himself between them. The bottom of the page, Marx concluded, both merchants' capital and interest-bearing capital, or users' capital as he refers to it otherwise in the Penguin edition, are 
derivative forms which, quote, appear before the modern primary form of capital, end quote. Commerce, trade, and money management, which is my euphemism for banking, are essential to the creation of capitalism, according to Marx, but are themselves parasitic because they create no value or additional labor to the commodity. At this moment, Walmart and Amazon hold the top two spots of the Fortune 500 and are the two largest employers in the United States. They are also, at least to a significant degree, merchants. At the same time, J.P. Morgan Chase, though they employ less than 8% the number of employees worldwide, as Walmart does in the United States alone, manages over $2.5 trillion in assets. Taking aside their subsidiaries and side businesses associated with both Walmart and Amazon, does the label Parasite fit better or bring any more practical relevance than the third largest American company, Apple? Is this relevant to how we consider the role of these companies within the United States? For example, does organizing a worker in the Apple manufacturing plant mean more than organizing a worker at an Amazon distribution center? And what about banking? How does it fit into this equation? I have a couple points. One, I think, you know, there's a theoretical aspect of this, which isn't useful when it comes to organizing, because there's a lot of people that work in Amazon warehouse or, you know, drive a truck for Walmart that, you know, even if they're facilitating this part, which says there's, you know, no value created or whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't mean much in terms of what that person's relationship to capital is, right? I think you could look at something like banking and say, hey, this is maybe because it creates no value. It's a bullshit job. And that could be something that could be cut from a more efficient, more people-oriented society. Um, but when it comes to like organizing these people, I guess I think about it a couple ways. Maybe Amazon or a Walmart driving uh, union, just from the perspective of when it comes down time to shut down the economy, there are certain you know nodes where it may be better to have a union in touch with the Vanguard party, you know what I mean, at that point to kind of coordinate some kind of broad-based national strike effort or something like that in action against capital. But I'm also reminded of how these theoretical kind of arguments can really dilute the class struggle and alienate people from the class struggle. Because I saw some kind of Instagram post that was made by one of these Pat socks. And basically the thesis was that service workers like baristas. Oh, shut up, shut up were, already. Jesus, no, I read that. I yeah, read right. That. But I think it's worth fucking talking about, right? Because like this, basically the thesis of this post was trying to say that these people aren't proletariat under Marxist definition, because they're parasitic, like you're talking about here, rather than actually like creating value from like a political organizing perspective. What fucking good is that? I, I saw that. And once my rage had subsided, yeah, I, I really don't know. He, he cited a Marxist text and I don't know the substance of it or, or whatever. But even if, if Marx himself said it, it feels un-Marxist for the specific reason that we established that all economies have a tendency towards being like a highly financialized economy. Like manufacturing is not as profitable as just having enough money to lend it to people for interest. So when you have an economy like America's that has become heavily financialized and there is less and less manufacturing, like America is not known for making products anymore. So what you have is a huge swath of the population that is no longer able to be in the strictly speaking proletariat 
class as that person defined it. It's, it's inherently defeatist because it's saying like, I only support the 8% of people who are in manufacturing and retail workers and, and baristas and such don't count so they can fuck off. He's saying that like America cannot be communist because we don't make enough stuff. It's not worth your time to make that post because it's not politically useful right now. It's it's Marxist edgelord shit. <laughs> he he came across the the one thing where he was like, oh, I can be a Marxist and say this incendiary thing that will get engagement on Instagram as though that was the fucking point. Leftists get the best engagement online. <laughs> right. Because we censor all the right wingers. Because we're in control. <laughs> Marxist Bidenists rise up. A point that you're both touching on, and I don't know this article that you're talking about. It's not an article. It was literally an Instagram post. Oh, God. Uh, then I'm glad I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. But the gist of what you're talking about ties into what we were talking about earlier, that if you think of Marx, the philosopher, he sometimes states concepts in order to get at larger ideas, but doesn't necessarily want that to be his main point or a point that he would ever hold on to as a political action. When he states something like the definition of the proletariat and that the proletariat are the means for revolution, he's stating what he might believe at that moment or might theoretically want to develop at that moment as a means for revolution, but that's not something he's going to take to his grave. He's thinking about these things in very philosophical terms, but he's also the historian. He's willing to consider where revolution is going to take place. That's why near the end of his life, his focus was primarily on Russia, which is very far from a modern proletariat state especially in his day. I think that makes sense. Uh, in any of the like the great well-known uh, writers in Marxism, in my experience, if you once you read two or three, four books or pamphlets or whatever from them, it's not hard to recognize the fact that the one from the earliest in his writing and the one from the latest in the writing, often there's a lot of growth and development, as there ought to be over the course of decades. This reminded me of the industry that I work in. So, I mean, I don't know how much you guys, or if you guys know how metals trading functionally works, but obviously have producers of metals, of which I work for one, and you sell those metals based on an index price. And the index is published by any number of different organizations, whether it's the LME or Platts or whoever it is. The only people that report prices into those publications are traders because producers' prices are inherently confidential because you have contracts with customers. What could be conceived as like the true value of the labor put into whatever those products are aren't reflected at all in the market. The market is solely based on what a trader can buy it for and sell it for. So an example of this this year, if you look at like the price of molybdenum. Oh, don't talk to me like I don't know. I'm a hawk for molybdenum prices, man, every day. <laughs> First thing when I wake up. So February to March, the price went from around $20 to $38. I remember that. And it was solely because of what happened in Peru. 20% of the world's molybdenum comes out of Peru. And because of the political situation in Peru, basically these traders were worried that they couldn't get material out. A left-wing movement in Peru to, to stop production caused the price to go up that much. And all the material didn't stop coming out of Peru, but just the, the perception that it might cause this run-up by the traders of material. Those tensions have died down a little bit, and then because of the banking crisis, that price has now gone under $20. So in the space of two months, the price has gone from 20 to 38 to under 20 And I guess kind of what I, I was taking from this chapter is like, 
that has no effect on the actual value of of what's being put in to produce this material. It is purely fairy dust of the market saying what something's worth. And producers have to live with those ups and downs. And again, the, the producers are still capitalists. So I mean, like, fuck them as well. But the workers, their wages aren't going up on $38. They're staying the same. They're not getting any benefit from the increased pricing. And they're, but they are getting a detriment when the price goes down because they're going to get laid off. People are going to cut back shifts. So you know that was kind of how I was looking at this in the sense of when you bring that drive for profit into this, it just, um, it just screws workers like we all know it does. Yeah, and I think to draw that into something that Nick said earlier, when you're talking about the value of commodities as they're transported or as they exist in different places around the world, there are different choke points and avenues where there are different levels of agency. Now, of course, capitalists have the greatest agency in the realm of circulation. But there's still, even in your story, you mentioned a leftist uprising in Peru caused the change in the value of these commodities. That means that there is actual opportunity in that realm for regular people to manipulate the value of commodities, whether that be a national strike, a refusal to export the country of Peru, nationalizing a commodity. Now, is this the best realm to consider working class agency? Remember when everybody just decided to fuck with GameStop stock and you you saw how ethereal prices really were? Like a company that was utterly worthless suddenly became insanely valuable and then tanked again within a matter of weeks just because people felt like doing it. Yeah, and I, I think that pulls into my sort of core contradiction to it. So that those people were able to manipulate the price of a commodity and a number of them were able to become obscenely wealthy off of it. But in the end, they decided that they were going to go into the casino and they were all going to count cards really well. And they figured it out. But then in the end, the casino still won. Those people that shorted GameStop still ended up okay. The capitalists weren't hurt. So was that really a useful action? Is that as useful as such an action can ever be? Structurally, it did nothing. But maybe it radicalized a few more folks. That's what I was going to say. Because... Uh, when it got really volatile, they started freezing the buying and selling of that stock. And it became incredibly demonstrative that the actual market was going to protect capital at all costs. Yeah. And the best thing was those, like, there was, I forget if it was on like Fox News or some shit, but there was some clip going around of that hedge fund manager just effectively like bitching and crying about these, these kids are ruining everything. And it was, that was the funniest part of it. To take this metaphor that I used a little bit further, I mean, the casino, when they find people counting cards, they go down there and they kick them out. If you're lucky, they kick <laughs> you out. <laughs> break, they might break your head first. Exactly. So you're not going to take down the casino by betting against black. It's just not going to happen. But you can wake people up. And if you really want to deal with casinos, you know, to continue this metaphor uh, in a really effective way, uh, I cannot emphasize enough that the Army's handbook is free to download as a pdf online purely for educational purposes purely for educational purposes but also uh that is not a joke it is free to download online as a pdf brandon's here everybody (laughs) 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 so to sort of draw this back to an issue i was bringing up earlier is it really useful to consider any one form of capitalism over another when the aim is about a whole new economic order and i think we've all sort of answered that 
actions and activism have a role in various realms and various spheres. Is this the best sphere? Probably not. But it can wake people up to how fixed this game really can be. It's the Leninist idea of voting. It's you, you vote to show people that no matter how hard you vote, you don't get what you want. A little bit of a funny aside here. Uh, so money management companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, which is currently number 12 on the Fortune 500, didn't qualify for consideration until 1994, specifically because they weren't creating value. So even Fortune was suspect of them as a driver of the economy. Even a broken clock, right? That makes the point of like how crazy shit has gotten under neoliberalism. So in a great conclusion to Chapter 5, Marx wrote on page 269, quote, The money owner who is as yet only a capitalist in larval form, must buy his commodities at their value, sell them at their value, and yet at the end of the process withdraw more value from circulation than he threw into it at the beginning. His emergence as a butterfly must, and yes must not, take place in the sphere of circulation. This contradiction that circulation is where the capitalist is born, yet is not the means by which they create value, appears to be a great means of understanding the nature of Marx's larger argument. Capitalism only exists in motion, so looking at any one moment doesn't give a good picture. So why then do businesses based on commerce appear to hold such astronomical value within the system of capitalism and contain one of the most concerted union efforts? Here I'm thinking of Teamsters and railroad unions, though the latter have been quite battered recently. So in relation to the previous questions of the previous conversation, why is it that the union movement seems to have its greatest strongholds in these positions, wherein capitalism seems to be also the strongest? It seems to be a contradiction in itself. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this. We talked about commerce broadly as parasitic. I don't think Marx would look at the workers that are involved in making that aspect run as parasitic. Because again, if we go back to the formulation of MC to M primed, you're talking about getting C to M. You know, it's just produced in the factory and then money magically appeared. Especially in today's world, you have to do have all this infrastructure to actually move the finished good. So it takes like a lot of physical and mental labor, even just to manage the transportation of those goods. Maybe Marx would realize like people profiting off of that step are parasitic that the people actually engaged in the work under the uh, capitalists running those aspects of it are parasitic. There's a lot of pressure to move goods even faster because it's a system predicated upon motion. So this is why you see, for example, the precision scheduled railroad um, practices that lead to derailments like they are in East Palestine, right? It's to get more goods through a given point quicker and quicker, and you do it by cutting inspection time cutting staff. You see a lot of pressure on workers in these, which is inherently going to lead to workers seeking alternatives to push back, which is why I think you do see a lot of unionization efforts and still some pretty stable unions where they exist. You you were uh, more specifically saying like, you know, the, the capital stronghold are the places where you also tend to find some union strongholds, correct? Yeah, which on the face of it seems like it would be a contradiction. To me, that seems very clear. In the places where exploitation is the most egregious and the most blatant tend to be the places where the people are most unwilling to tolerate it. When you can simply look into the office and your boss is wearing a four-figure suit and driving a six- or seven-figure car... 
Hey, the guy in the, the $4,000 suit is holding the elevator, but the guy doesn't make that in three months. Come on! And you're working overtime because your fucking wife got sick and you can't afford the medical bills. These are, are the, the very circumstances where a blue-collar background, I have experience enough to say uh, many times it's not explicitly a, a loathing of capital. Like Many people that are involved in unions are simply just fed up with their treatment. It's somehow apolitical, even though it's obviously is political. But from an individual's perspective in many unions, I, I get especially frustrated with mine all the fucking time. It's yeah, they're they're not trying to make any sort of political statement. It's just knowing that there are people above you that are just living high on the hog and you're struggling to get by. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it. And I'm going to pull back to one of Nick's points that he made earlier and try to build off of it. But he was saying that the capitalists themselves are involved in a parasitic relationship with manufacturing. But it doesn't mean that the workers themselves are parasites. And I think that's big to Marx's criticism is he's not calling workers that work because they're trying to make a wage parasites. His ire is purely aimed at the capitalist class. So to sort of pull this together and get to the larger question that I posed for this reading. What are the limits to a union asking for value to be dispersed among their workers if that value itself is always going to be based on exploitation? So to sort of put it in more real terms, when people heard the story about the railroad workers and their potential strike, one of the sort of stupid responses was, but they're paid so well. Why are they even bothering trying to strike? And it really gets to the deeper question of, well, they feel like their labor isn't being valued because there's more to your labor than a paycheck. You really want sick days, as was the, the specific thing that was latched on by the media. But is there really a limit to that sort of activism? Is union activism all it's made out to be? Or is that really the reason it's sort of the safe thing to give lip service to by the Democratic Party? Unionism is a stopgap measure, not going to achieve socialism just through the workplace, that's effectively like syndicalism. And I've never seen any modern uh, instance where that looked like it actually had teeth. But you also still have to pay the bills. You still need insurance. You still have to eat. And a union is a good way to achieve those goals in the interim. I've been reading and, and, and listening more about it. And it's, it was really in like the 30s, 40s, and 50s where you watched unions transition out of radicalism. And it's painful to, to see and to read about, there was a point in time where I would have argued that a union could be an avenue towards something greater. And because that's true, it could be true again, but in its current iteration, I, I don't see anything like that having potential. Brent, you mentioned the, the 30s when unions had power and you know how much of that also goes into it, the, the fact that the capitalists know now, especially, that the courts are going to support them and the courts are just going to continue to remove the power of unions. You know, we've got, I've mentioned it on a few podcasts, but that's a Supreme Court case that's basically could make unions uh, liable for losses when they strike. Yeah. So I, when we I saw that, yeah, when we've got these institutions that are just always going to support capital and just diminish the power of unions continuously, it, it makes the capitalists fear unions less as time goes on, which is, you know, a, a scary and very sad thing. And I, like, I hate to say it this way, but a lot of that is the fault of the unions. 
in my own union, we almost uh, went on strike for the first time. I wasn't even in the union yet when this happened, but we almost went on strike for what would have been the first time in like, I can't even remember how many decades, 60, 70 years or more. And then they reached a deal at the very last minute. And lo and behold, once all of the information came out from above, not only were the concessions that we gained pretty negligible, it was all pay-based. It meant that production companies had to pay a little bit more to continue abusing us the way that we do. There was no end to 12 and 16 and 18 hour days. There was no end to seven day work weeks. It was simply, oh, if we do X, Y, or Z, you get paid slightly better. And to be uh, more clear about what I I meant uh, with unions in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, I think by the 50s, what I'm discussing was pretty well dead is not necessarily that they had more or less power. It was that the leadership was more radical. Uh, Cars and Comrades, uh, we did a series with Turn Leftist about Walter Ruther, who was a union leader for the United Auto Workers. And I was shocked to learn that the leadership before he took over, and he was a highly like political figure, like he was good at the, the game, but the leadership of the United Auto Workers before him were communists and anarchist types. But that was the flavor of unions in that era. The last issue we were talking about was the limited action or the limited activist relevance of actions within commerce in general. No one avenue is going to get us to the final thing that we're looking for. But each one has its value within the larger picture. And I think this is where I hesitate to support these organizations that really posit a higher minimum wage as a means to a greater world, because it's really a dead end. You need to have something larger to build off of rather than hoping that you get exploited slightly less. Well, it's like the whole concept of the UBI. The UBI is, I mean, it's frankly a dumb idea because if you just circulate money within the same structure of relationships, Capitalists are just going to raise the prices to kind of correspond to the new influx of money that people have as a result of the UBI. Your standard of living probably isn't going to change. We saw that with COVID checks. Right. Yeah. I mean, and like the structure, the relations to production haven't changed at all, right? I'm, I've been reading a lot of Lenin lately. You know, he talks about economism. There's some aspects of what he was seeing, especially in like the early 1900s, that I think are similar in some ways to what we're seeing now. And he talked about the union struggles that were kind of arising in that time period in Russia. And like he kind of saw that as this is just the spontaneous and natural inclinations of working people to kind of organize in this fashion, right? And it's like, Brandon, what you were talking about earlier, even if people don't see it as political, it's inherently political because and like they can get to this point just based on the conditions that exist, even if they don't realize it's political. From you know an organizational perspective, you have to look at it and say a vanguard party. You don't necessarily need to be the ones like leading workers to unionization. We're seeing it right now, and a lot of these people aren't like you know socialists, communists. They're just working people, right? So I think if we're talking from like a theoretical and organizational level, we have to look at that and say, yeah, like the masses can get there on their own. The point is now is to kind of get in step with them. And then also add that organizational structure to actually work towards changing the structure of relationships while still taking the wins of improving people's lives materially through the unionization fight as well. But another thing I wanted to mention is the, even though I'm, I kind of like credited the uh, like sort of early half of the 20th century for having a more radical union leadership, there was a radical union movement in the 70s, late 60s into the 70s 
where vanguard groups formed within certain unions in the UAW and numerous other unions where they said that the leadership of the union had become too bureaucratic and that they were going to stand up for themselves. And they organized some very effective strikes, some wildcats. Uh, you know, they were getting themselves fired left and right and rehired because they were still part of, of the UAW. It gives you hope for the potential of what unions can be. They are the sort of thing that you need if you want to even start discussing having a vanguard party. Yeah, and this was a big dividing line among academic leftists. There's a magazine called Radical America by Paul Buell, where there was a divide even in the editorial staff about whether or not they should be supporting these wildcat strikes. Because there was this argument that these unions are only now starting to disintegrate and fall apart and get truly attacked and torn apart. So they should be supported and strengthened. And these wildcat strikes are just showing the divisions within the union. I guess there's an argument to be made about that, but I was much more convinced by the argument that these wildcat strikes really were trying to get at the purpose of the union itself. The compromises that were being made by leadership really weren't useful, and I think time has proven that to be true. But to pull us back to the text a little bit. So finally, Marx revealed why he had to punish us with so much dry, difficult writing on the commodity, because only in understanding labor as a commodity can he argue that its trade on the open market is one measure which leads to its purchase by would-be capitalists? Writing on page 274, quote, The historical conditions of its existence are by no means given with mere circulation of money and commodities. It arises only when the owner of the means of production and subsistence finds the free worker available on the market as a seller of his own labor power. And this one historical precondition comprises a world's history. Capital, therefore, announces from the outset a new epoch in the process of social production, end quote, which Marx continues in a note on the same page, quote, the capitalist epoch is therefore characterized by the fact that labor power in the eyes of the worker himself takes on the form of a commodity which is his property. His labor, consequently, takes on the form of wage labor. On the other hand, it is only from this moment that the commodity form of the products of labor become universal, end quote. So to me, this was kind of like the aha moment where the organization of Marx's larger argument made some sense. Of course, he needed to describe the concept of the commodity and its universalized nature under capitalism so he could describe its role within commerce in the creation of surplus value and defining an historical epoch. At the same time, as I stated before, I am extremely wary of Marx's presentation of epochs here, because it's easy to use this language to argue for a teleological understanding of history. Teleological meaning where one thing happens after the other as if dominoes falling, as though these things happen by nature of history, not by nature of agency or man. I'm glad you just defined teleological so I didn't have to sound stupid and ask what that word meant. <laughs> It's a good word. It makes you sound a lot smarter, but just sound like an asshole when you use it. (laughs) I love sounding like an asshole. That's perfect. So if the formation of capitalism can be understood to occur when the individual is sufficiently alienated from their own labor power so as to view it as a commodity onto which they are willing to affix a price, does this mean that the next epoch requires a new understanding of labor power? Or is Marx arguing this is a break? a new relationship which may need to be carried forward. Say it in another way. Are there limits to arguing for things like better education, 
just wages and corporate accountability if it continues to be couched in valuing labor power as a commodity form and property of the individual laborer. Yeah, I mean, I think it ties really well into the conversation that we were just having in a lot of ways. To enter a new epoch, you have to kind of lay hold of the the means of production and then change the way in which relations are organized, i.e. the structure of the state. So you don't have that relation of hierarchy of capitalists subordinating the worker. So it's a new relationship to production. Yeah, and to sort of build on how this becomes even more complicated, as you could imagine, and I'm sure you guys have heard, Marxists make the argument that a civilization needs to reach the capitalist epoch before it can reach the next. I don't know that Marx ever explicitly states that, but it is a very easy way to read him because he makes that language sound so concrete. But again, I, I think this is the philosophical Marx being confused with the historical, realist, political Marx. I always put it like this. It's like, if Marx was alive to actually see the Russian Revolution come to fruition, he wouldn't have told Lenin to, no, put it back. You didn't do it the right way. Yeah, and we have evidence of that. He could have said that to the Paris Commune. He he just waited (laughs) until they failed to tell them why they failed. Right. Uh, I think also worth mentioning is that when, when you discuss like a worker being alienated from his labor, I think that there is a lot of room to discuss that in terms of uh, ways that unions can be powerful because there have absolutely historically been unions who would do reading groups and organize like leftist activities. And if we can bring them back to that arena and wake workers up to like the degree of alienation that they're experiencing and, and what their labor actually means in relation to like the larger uh, structure, that becomes an avenue where, a union could be a really effective thing. Like it has happened in the past and that can obviously give you hope for the future as it being a positive Avenue. It is worth noting that I think Marx did recognize the progressive elements of capitalism, um, especially as it came toward, you know, developing, you know, the commanding heights of production and of the economy and things like that. Like we see that language thrown around in China, you know, where they've, obviously implemented some market features into their system of socialism with Chinese characteristics, right? I don't think we should ever read Marx as theological or deterministic. He was kind of taking what he had to develop this kind of framework of understanding, but also recognizing that you have to deal with different conditions in different places. I I think he mentions very explicitly that he's talking from the perspective of writing from England. Marx was always willing to support workers attempts to take power, even if they weren't, quote unquote, doing it the right way. To, to bring a few points together, because earlier we were talking about how, you know, who can be considered working class? And then in this question, you specifically mentioned just wages, education and, and corporate accountability. So like, I'll, I'll kind of, I'm coming at this from a just wages and education standpoint. Any job you look at now, there's more qualifications for it. Those all cost money, whether that's a plumber and anything, or if you're going into the corporate world, most jobs that aren't entry level, they probably ask for an MBA. All of that costs money to the point now where if you're a student getting your undergraduate in this country or, and then maybe a master's, how much debt are you accruing with that? So then what wage are you going to get as an entry level employee? You're never going to be able to catch up. And in England, where 
university is cheaper than it is here. But since when I went to university in England to now, they've adopted more of an American model where it is a lot more expensive than when I went. And recently, a lot of lawyers in London went on strike. Because if you're a public defender or a, a low-level lawyer, you're not really you're not earning that much. You're earning you know you're earning a good wage. But if you live in London and you're earning you know I, I think a wage for a lawyer right out of university when I was there was about thirty thousand pounds. Which even at that point, you're not living a good life in London. You, you're struggling. And they went on strike because the cost of university is about nine times as much as when I went to school there. And I'm sure the wages haven't gone up in proportion to that increase. The, the whole just wages and, and, you know, Marx makes the point of a wage needs to be able to sustain the person and the family. That's almost impossible when you consider how much education has increased in cost and wages have not followed. And, and you're just putting yourself in debt and then you're having to bet, depend on credit, which he makes that point when he talks more about like, you know, you're not getting paid daily. You're not getting paid for your daily work. You're getting paid, you know, twice a month or every week. So you're having to rely on credit in the meantime. And so you just, that circle of debt is just continuing and, and just, it goes on forever. I mean, look at even a doctor in this country. They obviously earn a lot of money, but a lot of them are leaving school with what, $300,000 in debt? Mechanisms of class domination, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought us here, Steve, because I, I think that there's a really powerful movement right now around debt, especially around education. And I've seen some really intelligent people that I respect couch it in ways that I find really confusing, where there's individuals saying, I can't believe the university would give out degrees that have such little value. And that just makes me think like, oh, so you agree that universities should just exist to create good workers. Like, Is there really no larger value in education? Or I guess state another way, is there no greater value in the university? Can we really not imagine the university being a place where education is valued for the sake of education? We really need it to be based on making a education that's valuable. And that really gets to the bigger issue that I have about when we use concepts like value in terms of making wages in order to pay debts, we begin to lose the forest for the trees. That's not the world that we want. We don't want a place where we can get a good education and get a good job and make a good amount of money and then die. We're looking for something bigger. Yeah. yeah. In that scenario, we're kind of like buying into the capitalist formulation of education as kind of social reproduction to keep the profit machine moving, you know? Yeah. And to, to pull back at what I believe Brandon was saying earlier too, there's an attraction to that. We want to be comfortable and that sort of conversation could be an entryway towards radicalizing people so that's sort of how I justify when I hear certain leftists say it's not fair that the university is giving us degrees that can't give us a job to get us to pay off these debts. It's because they're really trying to reach people that haven't made all of those connections yet. And that's me being generous. But it doesn't answer the core question. I haven't actually heard this answered very well of what is the point of education. I mean, I think it depends on the societal context, you know, in which you're defining it. If you live in a society, to use the word again, that values, you know, human development beyond just going in to work for a capitalist, I mean, I think education means a completely different thing. I think they strove at that to some extent in the Soviet Union. You know, obviously, production and modernization was still 
you know, it was still first and foremost in a lot of ways, but, you know, there was a lot of emphasis put on like proletarian art, proletarian culture, art and music for art and music's sake as part of like a broader, you know, human experience and and more enriching human life. I think we know what we would like to see. um, And I think we could do better as humans, certainly than what we have now and under capitalism. From strictly my own perspective, asking like, what's the purpose of education? to me, feels like asking what's the purpose of evolution. It's not goal-oriented. It's just happening, and you grow. Every generation grows and learns more, and you develop, and you refine, and you hone the information that you have. It's No, it's absolutely not about getting the better job and getting paid more so that you can live a moderately more fulfilling life. Education, I sort of think of in a, a, a sense greater than what we see in America in a capitalist world is, you know, uh, a manifestation of human accomplishment. It's really a celebration of humanity. It's, it's look what we can achieve when we work towards something, you know, it's bastardized by capital because it becomes strictly like, look what we can achieve financially when we do these things. Look what white people can achieve now. (laughs) I think in my perspective, I don't know about you guys, I think I've self-taught myself a lot more than I ever learned. I think what school did for me was teach me how to learn almost, right? Through history and English literature and and going to law school, teach me how to read different texts and how to learn stuff. But I think what I learned in school, I I don't retain a lot of it, especially my university education. It, It lays a solid foundation to build upon. Yeah, and and it may teach you what you're interested in, and or help you guide guide you in that direction. For me personally, w- what I've gone on to absorb myself has has probably been more worthwhile to what I value in terms of education. I've taught history at the university level, and a lot of the time, even other teachers in other departments can't comprehend what a history education is. They just think like, "Oh, you're like teaching them trivia. You're teaching them when things happen." It's like, well, not really. They all have smartphones they can look up when things happened that's not the point of this education what i'm trying to teach them isn't the catechism i'm not trying to teach them the answers to their questions i'm teaching them how to ask questions what are the good questions and how to sort of grow from there and that's such a hard thing to convince somebody that's only at school to get a good job they don't want to hear that they want to hear what they need to repeat to get a good grade and move on, get that first job or get that internship, then get that job, then get higher up at that job, then afford two and a half cars and three kids or whatever it is. And it's really kind of disappointing and sad. But at the same time, I I can't fault them entirely. It's hard to imagine what education can really look like while we're stuck in this epoch. We need that imagination and we need those discussions of the next world. That's also a reflection on you being a good teacher. I think a lot of teachers are in the same model as the students. They just want to teach the kids what they need to pass a test. And I mean, especially when you get under the university level, the high schools and, you know, I, I think they just want to move kids on. They want to get them to pass the test and, and keep going. I had one science teacher in high school that really like epitomized this because he was the exception in that my school did not require the teaching of evolution. It didn't ban it, but it didn't require it. According to this specific teacher, their program was to 
fill so much other stuff into the curriculum that the teachers would not have time to teach evolution. So what he did was make us bust ass for the entire school year so that he was able to dedicate an entire week to teaching evolution. Because if he wasn't banned from doing it, he was going to do it. These are components of like the human experience that just aren't incentivized under capitalism, right? Because I think what's defined as socially necessary is, again, in that capitalist context. But I think it's interesting to read something like Of Socialism and Man in Cuba by Che Guevara or look at someone like Paul Robeson's conception of the new man or the new human, I should say. And just that it's not just about working till you die. It's about the full spectrum of human experience. And I think folks like that just envisioned the next step of people being able to accomplish further enrichment had to occur in a completely new context. Like, I think there's always an assumption when we talk about like the value of an education, but if you construct society differently, what value means just kind of intuitively to people would change. Yeah. And I'm glad Brandon brought up somebody in the harder sciences as being capable of understanding this notion of value at a higher level, because it isn't a concept unique to the humanities. And there's plenty of awful people in the humanities. It's just that the humanities make a really easy target to lash out against for people that want to argue about the value of work in itself. And it's also one of the locations, not necessarily at the university, but one of the locations of poetry and art that really a new world can be imagined. Like Paul Robeson is an artist, first and foremost. And we even talked about this, I think on the previous episode, but definitely in chat, that Marx himself also was an artist. He was capable of writing actually interesting prose. So talking about even the artistry of Marx, on page 272 to 273, Marx makes a rather clever use of the concept of freedom and its essential place at the center of the capitalist epoch. Quote, The owner of money must find the free worker available on the commodity market, and this worker must be free in the double sense that as a free individual he can dispose of his labor power as his own commodity, and that, on the other hand, he has no other commodity for sale, i.e., he is rid of them. He is free of all the objects needed for the realization of his labor power. So Marx leans on the incompatibility of capitalism with slavery and its dependence on freedom in the double sense of laborers being free from the means of production and free to sell their labor as a commodity on the market. In order for this to be functional, Marx leaned on the role of the state on a note on page 271, again making an exception to his pure classical understanding of the market. Maybe I'm getting hung up on Marx's ironic use of the word freedom. Of course, the worker and the slave are not free in the ideal sense. Rather, the worker is more free than the slave, but still in a form of bondage. With this limited understanding of slavery and freedom, does slavery seem all that different as to argue that one cannot exist within capitalism? Is this line of thought useful for political agitation, in a sense devaluing the importance of individual labor on the market, or am I just misunderstanding something here? So this is the sort of argument of wage slavery. Is this a useful term? Or is it really devaluing the previous epoch that we've moved away from? Honestly, this is something I'm pretty rough with because I will never understand how you can say that uh, slavery is not compatible with capitalism. To, to this very day, it is the 
crux of the entire system. I think it just lends itself to, I mean, we have to remember Marx was a, a communist, right? I mean, the end goal being a classless, stateless society, right? So I think even if there were some measures of progress that were recognized, you know, Marx's thesis is still that people aren't going to be free until we exist in a classless, stateless society. And the strivings towards that and the advancements towards it are going to be halted and messed with as we move forward. But that's, I mean, the conception is always to move towards that because otherwise somebody's being oppressed in one way or the other. Also, just like with the whole like historical epochs thing, I don't think it's ever useful to think of these things as like discrete moments. Shit, we still have a fucking king in England, right? Like that is a legacy of feudalism, just as, you know, slavery, you know, is a legacy of feudalism in some way. And probably, I mean, a legacy of the slave societies that preceded that, that we just haven't been able to kick because it's so lucrative for profit making. I don't discount the attempts at and the workings towards socialism that exists now. Are they perfect? No. But they're existing in a world where kind of like the main and dominant, you know, mode of production exists, but there's always going to be overlaps. Yeah, to frame this even more critically of Marx as he's understanding the world, both as a philosopher and a historian, he's looking at specifically European nations when he's talking about this and seeing what he believes to be a progress from one form to another. So maybe, I don't know the rest of his writings well enough, nor do I think it's really that essential to understanding Marx, but maybe he truly believed that slavery was going to fall off as capitalism spread throughout the world. I don't know that we can fault him for thinking something like that, given his position in the world at that moment and his limited understanding of nations beyond the borders of Europe. But it, it, it does, on the face of it, just seem ridiculous that he would state such a clear delineation between freedom and slavery. But even at that same time, he notes in his dual use of the word free that there is coercion involved in free labor itself. Yeah, I think this is why a lot of us put so much value on Lenin is because he's the one who fleshed out a lot more. It's imperialism. Like you can ban slavery within your own borders as we did sort of kind of, you know, 150 years ago and change. But, you know, we, we, we still just found ways to utilize slavery abroad. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to the point we made at the start, right? With outsourcing or shoe companies using sweatshops or, you know, migrant labor in the US. And I mean, it, you know, we might not call it slavery, but it's not far. It's not much different. Chocolate can pretty much only exist thanks to slave labor. Yeah. Happy Easter. <laughs> Week. Yeah, this isn't a happy text. Yeah, fair, fair enough. But there's something even more complicated about this nature of slavery in markets. Because when we talk about the reason that a person working at Walmart can kind of make it by on their minimum wage is because of subsidies from the United States government, but also because they're able to buy products manufactured in locations with even more lax labor standards or lower value of labor. This nature of imperialism is so tied to the welfare of the individual worker. If products produced in, let's say, a country like India actually do go up twice as much, you could imagine the prices of products in Walmart going up by twice. And they're not raising the minimum wage, so workers really are going to be hurt. Now, I'm not saying that the capitalists 
can't just take a haircut and lose less profit, but they're not going to. No, if anything, they'll do the opposite. Right. They'll use even the scare or the idea of increased costs from places like India or China in order to raise their costs. Or they say costs went up 50 cents, so we have to now raise this by a dollar fifty. And when people are driven by their individual desires to live more comfortably, which we can't fault them for, especially if they're teetering on the edge of absolute abject poverty, they're going to lash out and reach out to fear-mongering. They're going to reach out to anti-Chinese, anti-Indian propaganda. You're talking about it, but that's why like this moment of de-dollarization is, you know, it's simultaneously a great thing for the whole world, but it's also a dangerous moment domestically because folks, a lot of folks that don't have an understanding of imperialism, their material conditions are going to change from what in many cases is already very bad to worse when the, you know, their purchasing power essentially goes down because the dollar is not as valuable purchasing cheap goods produced overseas as well. And then, you know, when you're mainlining CNN or Fox News, for that matter, you know, they're not going to talk about how it's the capitalist's fault. It's China's fault. Yeah. And we touched on this last episode when we were talking about crisis being the, the portion of capitalist reality where forms of capitalism actually strengthen themselves. But it's also the point at which capitalist countries collapse. And what you're speaking about is a impending crisis. No, even hopeful times. We don't, but at the same time, we're living in a moment of crisis, which historically is the time that things get better, possibly. I'm saying that we don't live in a hopeful time, but at the same time, like everyone here is advocating leftism, which is at its core an inherently optimistic uh, approach to living, approach to the world. Yeah, and I, I think to tie in a bunch of things that we've talked about in this, education, free time, certain basic levels of comfort are moments where we can take time to actually think of a better world, to imagine a better world, to work towards a better world. And those moments seem to be collapsing rather than expanding with the current crisis. And I mean, historically, that's common, but maybe just because we're living in it, it just feels so much more dreadful now, especially with impending environmental disaster lumped on top of everything else. I mean, perhaps there's a stage where you don't even have the free time to, to think more optimistically, but there's another stage perhaps after that where things are so dire and you are so scared that you are forced to lash out. And historically, you have seen that go in a number of directions, but there are still people in America where when they lashed out, it was against capital and it was uh, informed like it was it was not just lashing out. It, it's take sharecroppers who were organized by the Communist Party and formed sharecroppers unions because they lived in dire circumstances. And when they got informed about the real root cause of their dire circumstances, they fought back. That's where my, my hope lies, is even though we've spent a lot of time talking about the faults of the labor movement and union movement in the United States, they still have the ability to create space for radicalization. And I can't think of any other major institution in the United States that even comes close. I mean, they've been a victim, like everything else in the U.S., to propaganda and, and infiltration by capital. It, it's tragic, but it, it's, it doesn't make the institution inherently bad. It just, you know, I, oh, God, I don't want to use the word reform, but like it, it needs change in a radical way. Yeah, propaganda, but like concerted state efforts to eradicate the, the radical leadership and sweep that into kind of the purchase of the Democratic Party 
as an institution of capital influence and those movements, you know, in many ways we still haven't recovered yet. Yet. I mean, and to make the point again, there was also the external pressure of the Soviet Union. That can't be stated enough. It really can't. So the lot of chapter six and the entirety of part two, for that matter, contains rather cold and calculating analysis on the part of Marx until the very last paragraph on page 280, where he wrote, quote, he who was previously the money owner now strides out in front as a capitalist. The possessor of labor power follows as his worker. The one smirks self-importantly and is intent on business. The other is timid and holds back like someone who has brought his hide to the market but now has nothing to expect but a tanning. This line sounds like the fury of Marx and Engels in the iconic closing line of the Manifesto of the Communist Party, published nearly 20 years earlier, quote, The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. Whereas the Manifesto used moralistic prose to encourage the working class to throw off their chains, a similar moralism is used here to describe how the capitalist applied the manacles on the working class. Why does Marx use such cold language up to this point, and what does this moralistic tone signify in terms of his argument? I mean, to me, it's like the reminder of why you're here. Like I talked about earlier, it's kind of like that distant language to kind of describe the inhuman functioning of capitalism in a lot of ways, but you're not here just for that. I think it serves pretty well as to remind people, and if you're reading Capital, you probably already know and remember, but that's a stout reminder of exactly what you're doing. Like you are selling the only thing you truly ever have, your life. And for what? To who? Why? To the asshole striding out confidently in front of you. In terms of that statement as a piece of literature, it really shows without telling, because nowhere does Marx say who is who in that sentence. But we all immediately know who's who. Because mm-hmm. we talked a lot about, you know, impending crises and, you know, the bubblings of a new labor movement. So there's encouraging signs in, you know, a dark world as well. But it, like Brandon said, this is inherently optimistic and we're here because we have open humanity. Otherwise, like, what are we doing? I don't think we do this just for the fun of it. There's been a lot of like Tolkien discourse in like our various group chats. And what I'll say is all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So, <laughs> all right, guys. Well, uh, Levi, thanks as always for putting this together. Brandon, thanks for joining us. For the folks listening, make sure you listen to Cars and Comrades. Keep up with us on the intervention. And more than that, go out and organize. Join PSL. Join some coalition in your neighborhood. Do something. Go agitate with workers, go stand on a picket line, get them to be your friend and just get them to see that as a socialist, you're a decent person. So when the time comes, they they know the decent people are on their side. So there's a lot to be done. Nobody's going to do it all on their own. And that's why we organize. As always, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. So the next reading will be chapters seven through 10. See you, comrades. Take it easy. Thanks. Adios, paisanos. You can be what you